Well, I want to ask you as a question as we start this morning. I know the answer to it. Uh, you may not say this answer out loud, but I know secretly you, uh, I know your answer. And so my question to you is this. Do you have any fears? Now, many of you are willing to say yes, and some of you are stone-faced because inside you're thinking, I really do, but I'm not sure I'm going to make it public at this point. The truth is, as Americans, and quite frankly, as humans, we have all kinds of fears. The Washington Post did a study in 2014 of the top 10 fears of Americans, and I thought it'd be fun to share that with you this morning. Uh, The 10th most prominent fear of Americans is the fear of ghosts, right? So fear of ghosts is number 10. Perhaps for you, that was one you were thinking of. Or... Number nine, I've never understood this, but people tell me it's real, is the fear of clowns, right? Fear of clowns, so that's number nine. Number eight, I get this one, is the fear of darkness, right? Fear of darkness. Number seven, again, strange fear, but perhaps with uh, uh, new TV shows and stuff that are on, is the fear of zombies. Fear of zombies. Anyone want to admit they have that particular fear this morning? (laughs) Uh, Number six, and this maybe fits into some of the stuff we've been talking about, number six is the fear of strangers, right? As parents, we've done a really good job, uh, and rightly so in some ways, of uh, instilling that fear in our kids. Number five, the fear of flying. The next most prominent fear is claustrophobia, being in confined spaces, and I totally relate to that one. That's one of mine. And I relate to the very next one, too. The next most prominent fear is blood and needles. Can I get an amen, right? We get that one. Then number four, the fourth most prominent fear is drowning and death. That's number four. Death is the number four most prominent fear amongst Americans. Something is not quite right. I should not be at the top of the list. Number three, bugs. More Americans are afraid of bugs than dying. (laughs) Number two, I get this one, is heights. I remember when we lived in Chicago, I was going to seminary, and uh, we went to the top at the time. It was called the Sears Tower. I think it has a different name now, which is a massively tall building. And we stood at the top, and it was a completely safe structure, but I just remember being terrified of how high we were. And then number one, does anyone know what the number one most common fear of Americans is? It is public speaking. That's right. So, to use a little bit of Seinfeld humor, that means that, and this shows up all the time in studies, this regularly shows up, you can see it in studies, that people are more afraid to speak in front of other people than to die. And this makes no sense at all, right? So this is what Jerry Seinfeld says. He says, so when you think about a funeral, more Americans would rather be in the coffin than delivering the eulogy. And this makes no sense at all, right? Well, this morning, I want to talk about another fear that many of us have, especially as Christians, and that fear is sharing our faith with those around us. And if we had broadcast this topic, some of you may not have even come this morning because it's a touchy subject, and we've seen it done the wrong way. We've talked to people who have done it the wrong way, and what we've tended to believe is that wrong use means that we should disuse, but I want to suggest to you this morning that Central to our call to love God and love others is to be willing to share our faith 
with those around us. And Paul even tells us that we don't have to be afraid. And he gets even deeper at some of the reasons for our fear, and he says you don't have to be, he uses the word, ashamed of the gospel. Because he knows for us that our fear in sharing it deals with the shame that we have about it. How will people receive what we're saying? Will I be rejected? Will I be labeled? What if I don't do it well? What if I don't have answers to questions? All of these external fears coming from a a lack of true belief that the gospel is uh, central to our life and to our existence. Paul says that we can be unafraid and unashamed. Well then, how? If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. Uh, If you can find the New Testament, you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. Romans is Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Go figure. And the church in Rome is a church that Paul has never been to. He hasn't been involved in seeing this church started, but he wants to go there. And this is why he writes this letter, because he wants to go there. He wants to be encouraged by their faith and to encourage them. But he also wants to see this church at Rome be a springboard for Paul's desired ministry all the way into Spain, which would be the outer reaches of the empire at that time. And central to this whole letter, sort of the thesis statement of what Paul says here is found in verse 16. This is what he writes, Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Paul, when he makes the statement that he is unashamed of the gospel, there's two things at play in Paul's mind when he's thinking about this. The first is that he's unashamed to believe the gospel. And by believe, he doesn't just mean like intellectually assenting to it and then like never doing anything about it. Like he doesn't just mean like theologically I accept it. When when Paul uses the word believe, he means that like I'm willing to be known by this gospel. I'm willing for the world to identify me by this gospel because I want God to identify me by this gospel. Paul says, hey, no matter what comes, I am unashamed. Please know me as a follower of Jesus. And ultimately for Paul, this unashamedness of the gospel will lead to his martyrdom. He's going to die because of it. For us, what would it mean to be unashamed of the gospel? To be willing to be known by the gospel in how we live and what we choose and how we order our lives and our allegiance to Jesus above ourselves. And for Paul, there's something that is distinctly connected to that that can't be separated. And that is that if you are unashamed to be identified by the gospel, then you should be unashamed to proclaim the gospel. 
If you're unashamed to be identified by the gospel, and you'll be unashamed to share the gospel with those around you. In fact, Paul uses a fascinating word in the two verses before verse 16. If you read those, he says, I am obligated. Now, if you're anything like me, the word obligated just rubs you the wrong way, right? No one's telling me what to do, right? That's the first thing I think when I hear a word like that. Rules, boundaries, structure, systems, those are things I like to break, not follow. But Paul is using the word obligation not in a guilt-ridden sort of way that maybe many of us who've grown up in the church have understood things like sharing our faith, like, well, God was good to you. You better go earn it now. You're obligated. It's not what Paul means. In fact, one theologian wrote about this verse this way, and I think this makes so much sense. He said, there's two ways to process obligation here in the context of Paul sharing his faith. The first is uh, you can be obligated because someone gives you something, and then you're obligated to give it back to them, right? Does that make sense? So in other words, uh, when you bought your house, unless you have a decent amount of money, you probably uh, included a bank in that transaction. They lent you money, but part of lending you money meant you are obligated to pay it back, right? But that's not really what Paul's talking about here. His obligation comes in a different way. That sort of is as a messenger's obligation, so that someone gives you something so that you will take it to someone else. And your obligation comes from the commission that you've been given to give it to other people. And so when Paul says obligation, he's speaking in a completely grace-based, gospel-centered way. Not that, not that, oh, but God, Jesus saved me. I better go do these things or maybe he'll take his salvation back from me. But believing that the gospel in and of itself actually moves us to want to have other people included in this, this beautiful story, this freedom, this grace, this mercy that God has given. There's an obligation that rises out, a response to who God is. And if you like blunt language better, uh, 19th century famous British preacher Charles Spurgeon, who was uh, an orator for sure, and had the spiritual gift of bluntness, which I like. Maybe it's a little bit offensive at times. This is what he said. He said, a Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Now, that is hard truth. And yet, if you read the New Testament, you would come to the same conclusion as Paul. That to believe the gospel is, is included with the idea of being sent to make the gospel known to those around us. So if this central call is true of all Christians that we're called to make this gospel known, then how? How can we be unashamed of it? Because if you were anything like me, many other things come into play that keep you from engaging, sharing your faith with those around you. So there are four things I think that come out of these two verses that speak to me Maybe you're different than me, but there are four things that speak to me and speak to my insecurities, my anxieties, my fears, my ashamedness in sharing the gospel. And so as I preach to myself over these next few minutes, hopefully some of these things touch your spirit as well. The first thing Paul would say is a reason to be unashamed in making the gospel known is that the gospel is true. The gospel is true. And many of you are sitting here saying, I know it's true. But if it's true, it means something. And Paul uses this interesting language. He says, 
The gospel is the righteousness of God that has been revealed. This word righteousness is an interesting word. Many times in church circles, we hear the word righteous and we think sort of like holy, pure, set apart, always just, doing what is right. And this is absolutely true. But the the phrase righteousness of God actually has a bigger meaning than that. And it comes out of uh, the Jewishness of the term. And Paul, of course, was a Jewish uh, Jewish man himself who had come to faith in Christ. And his, his Jewish faith was, was found its full manifestation uh, through Jesus. And, and the idea of righteousness in the Old Testament and in relationship to God was not just his holiness and his justice, but also how he carried out his covenant with his people. In other words, not just the truth of his righteousness and holiness and justice, but the action of it to make good on his promise to his people to be their God and for them to be his people and for him to once and for all deal with evil and set the world to right. So when, when Paul is using the phrase righteousness of God, he certainly has the sense in which God is going to deal with evil, but he also has this sense in which God is going to redeem the whole earth He's going to set it right and bring it back to his original intent and design. And Paul says, not only is this going to happen, but it has and is happening. That's the word revealed, right? He didn't say he will reveal or he might reveal or it's coming in the future. He said, it's been revealed. And that's code word for Jesus came. That Jesus is the means by which God is setting the world Right, that God didn't just stand outside and judge the evil and the, and the resulted brokenness of this world, but he entered into the midst of it in the person and work of Jesus to set it right. That's why the cross of Jesus is central to the Christian faith. Because it's on the cross where God judges evil but does it in a way to make good on his promise to restore the world and include his people in it. Because a miracle happens on the cross where the justice of God brings justice on evil, but evil is balled up. You remember those, one of those giant rubber bands that people keep making? Like evil is balled up like a giant rubber band taken from you and me in this world and the systems of this world and laid on Jesus and dealt with once And for all. And we know that this miracle happened, not because Jesus died on the cross, but because three days later, he rose from the dead. And the resurrection means the ultimate defeat of the ultimate brokenness, which means the restoration of the world by God is underway in Jesus. Here's what Paul would say. If the resurrection is true, then the gospel is true. And if the gospel is true, then the restoration of the whole world is underway through Jesus. And that should make us unashamed to share the gospel with those around us. More specifically... He says that the the righteousness of God has been revealed and that the gospel is the power of God to bring salvation. Now listen to me, you have to listen carefully. Salvation is not the gospel, right? Many of us have heard 
the gospel is that Jesus died for my sins. If I receive that, uh, then I can go to heaven forever. All of that is true. But that is a result of the gospel. The gospel is actually far bigger. That God has set to rights the whole world and is doing it through Jesus. One of the great realities for people like you and me, I'm assuming you're broken like me, is that we can enter into that restoration of God through what Paul calls faith. He says faith from first to last. That is, the faithfulness of God is first, and the faith of man is subsequent to it that gets us access into the restoration that God has provided. Why should you be unashamed to share the gospel? Because the resurrection has happened, the gospel is true. And because the gospel is true, restoration is possible for everyone. That is not something to be ashamed of. And Paul goes on to say three more things, and these three things really speak to anxieties of my heart when I think about sharing my faith with others. The second reason that Paul says we should be unashamed of the gospel is because it's universal. It's universal. By that, I mean that the gospel is the same and is available to everyone, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of religious or ethnic background, regardless to to gender, regardless to anything. It's why Paul says it's come first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. He's making a statement about everyone. Or if you go a couple verses before when he says he's obligated, he says, I'm obligated to Greeks and to non-Greeks. Why is he saying that? He means everyone. Then he says something interesting. He says "To, to wise and to foolish people. The point being that this is for everyone. If you're anything like me, you pre-decide for people what their response to the gospel will be. Well, this isn't for them right now. Paul says, no, don't be ashamed in that way. This is for everyone. That doesn't guarantee a response, but it does make us unashamed. Third, Third reality that makes us or should make us unashamed to share the gospel with those around us is that it's good. It's good news. The word gospel is the Greek word euangelion, and it actually literally does mean good news. The idea is this reality that what is happening here, what God has done, is the best news possible. And yet, if you're anything like me, when I think about sharing my faith, I am much more driven by how people may or may not respond to me than I am by whether or not I truly believe this news is good. Does that make sense? I'm much more driven by whether or not I'll be rejected than whether or not this news is good. And yet Jesus is incredibly optimistic about the gospel. Do you remember what he says to his disciples? The harvest is plentiful, he says. I look at the harvest and think, I don't know that anyone wants this. Right? Do you think you process it anything like me? I know these people. I see where they're at. I'm not sure. Uh, Maybe one or two people, maybe in the right situation. But Jesus is like, no, this news is so good. The harvest is plentiful. The issue, Jesus says, is not whether or not the news is good. It's actually that I don't have very many workers. Right? Interesting. If we truly believe the gospel is good, it relieves fear and ashamedness. And then lastly, and perhaps most powerfully, This is what Paul would say, that the gospel is powerful. 
Did you notice that? When he says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. Power is the Greek word dunamis. We get our English word dynamite. It is explosive. It breaks through all kinds of strong rocks and barriers. The gospel has the message to get or has the power to get to the hearts of people through all kinds of barriers. Maybe you're like me. When I think about sharing my faith, I think, gosh, there's a whole lot of questions that I'm not sure I have suitable answers to. Or I'm not sure I'm the best way to do it. I'm, sometimes I can be awkward in how I interact with people. This is, what, this is what Paul means by saying the gospel is the power of God. It's that God does the work, we do the sharing. Does that make sense? That it is God's power that can do disruptive and penetrating things when we unleash it by sharing the gospel. Now, does Paul know this because a bunch of pastors told him this in interesting sermons? No. Do you know how Paul knows this and believes this? Because he's seen it happen time and time again. He shared the gospel and he's seen God do incredible things when he shared it. You may say, well, Paul is a great speaker. He's a lawyer. He's persuasive. Well, this is what Paul said about himself to the Corinthians. I'm not eloquent in speech. I don't have incredible things to say. All I do is announce Christ and him crucified. Point being, it is not the message or the craftiness of it, but it is the power of God through the work of the Spirit that does something. Does that mean when you share the gospel with someone or share your faith with someone, that immediately they're going to fall on their knees and ask you to, to show them how to respond to this? If the answer is, is no, right? There's at least... Well, there's three different ways that people respond when we share the gospel, and Paul experienced all of them. Sometimes he experienced all three of them at the exact same time, like when he preached in the Areopagus at Athens, this huge place. He had been brought there because people wanted to hear what he had to say about, the, about Jesus and this gospel, this new philosophy that he was talking about. And it said, when Paul shared this, it said, many believed. Power of God. It also says many said, this guy's nuts. He's crazy. They didn't believe. And there was this third group that said, it said about them, many of them said, we need to hear more from you on this. And so when we share our faith, there are three different kinds of responses. <laughs> Sometimes the power of God comes and does incredible things and people Believe in that moment. Sometimes because the barriers and the work of the enemy, people reject it in that moment. And sometimes because the power of God is at work breaking down barriers, people say, I'm not ready to believe, but I want to know more. No matter what, Paul says, we can be unashamed to proclaim the gospel. Because it's true. Because it's good, because it's universal, and because it's powerful. So then how would we lean into something like this? If we truly believe that part of loving our neighbors was being ready to share the, the faith that we have in an appropriate way, 
How can we lean in to this reality? Well, Peter, whose letter we've been using a lot in this series, uh, writes about this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Remember, this whole letter is basically telling them uh, how to live intentionally in a foreign land. And this is what he says. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Peter, in that short little verse, gives us three ways, I think, to lean into this reality of sharing our faith with those around us. The first is that it should happen within relationship. This whole letter has been talking about how to live with the people around us. In other words, let me put it to you this way. uh, There should be no drive-by gospeling. We've seen it. We've experienced it. People who have no relationship, no connection to come and just drop a bomb and then move on and hope that God does something. Every once in a while, we will be presented with a unique opportunity, but in the most part, God has placed us where we are to develop intentional relationships so that when opportunities arise within those relationships, we can speak to the faith which we are oriented towards and which motivates us. It's not, on, it's not by coincidence that we are talking about sharing our faith after we have talked about hospitality and after we have talked about listening. Because sharing your faith in relationship without first demonstrating those two things is a drive-by gospeling. And it is not the way that God calls us to. The second thing, not only within relationships, but with love, right? You heard what Peter said, with gentleness and respect. That means sharing our faith should never be perceived in a judgmental, condescending, demeaning, argumentative, yelling kind of way. We are not bomb throwers. We are people called to make known the reconciling work of God in the world, primarily through our love. And yes, part of loving means speaking truth. But doing it in a winsome and gentle and respectful way. And then lastly, and maybe this seems obvious, but to me this is the most important. You must be intentional. If we say, yes, I know that sharing my faith is part of what it means to be a gospel-centered person, and yes, I know that I should do it, then the regular routines of your life will carry you and you will not engage with it. But if you choose intentionality, then you will be able to lean harder into this way of living that God calls us to. First way to be intentional is to pray. Pray for opportunities. When we first moved here, uh, many of you have heard this story, Hope Alliance Church uh, was a dream when we moved here. Uh, We knew nobody. We had no connections We just knew that God was calling us here. And so, Rach and I would regularly pray. We would pray for God to to open opportunities that we could not even create on our own. And it began to happen with such regularity that we changed the way we prayed. And instead of saying, God, would you, we would say, God, what are you going to do today? Now, I'm embarrassed to admit to you, I don't pray that way anymore. And yet, I've been learning to re-pray that way 
because I've gotten used to, now we have people and we have two congregations and God's doing all these things and it's used to getting caught in the motions and you lose intentionality, you lose passion for comfort in so many ways. And what if we were intentional in praying for opportunities? And then you hear what Peter said, part of intentionality means being prepared. He says, always be ready. Being ready does not necessarily mean, hey, if an opportunity comes, God's going to tell me what to do. That happens. But being ready also means literally being ready. (laughs) All of us who have believed the gospel have a story of faith to share with those around us. You should be ready to share that story. You should be sharing it regularly with your husband or your wife or your friends or your kids or your parents or whoever so that you're, you're telling that story and so that you're ready to share that story when the opportunity arises. You should know how to, how to speak the truth of the gospel in a, in a succinct way so that when an opportunity comes, all of these things we see as super spiritual and that God magically will rain them down on us. And it could happen, but let me give you a much more practical suggestion. Practice. So that when the opportunity comes, you feel prepared. And then not only should you prepare, but lastly, being intentional means taking the opportunities when they come. Taking the opportunities when they come. When the conversation turns to a spiritual reality. When someone who you are in relationship with begins sharing with you problems, challenges, issues they're facing, deep needs or hurts of their soul, can I make a humble suggestion to you? They are not looking for your good advice. They are looking for good news of a God who loves them and who has worked a whole plan of restoration which they are invited into. Good news is only found in the gospel. What if we saw those moments in conversations, not in aggressive, not in, a, in an attacking, not in a condescending, not in a super spiritual way, but in a completely empathetic way as opportunities to say, you know what? I'm not sure that I've ever wrestled with the thing you're wrestling with, but I know I've experienced all kinds of brokenness in my life. And the only thing that has brought about restoration for me is the gospel. And there you go. If you are praying for them, something tells me the opportunities are going to come. So be ready and take them. At Hope Alliance, we have a dream. Our dream is that the gospel would be within the reach of every single person in the Lehigh Valley. Not religion, not church, the gospel. It's why we are identified by the statement, simply Jesus. It's why we've structured our church the way we've structured, rather than some big regional center, but neighborhood congregations where people can meet the gospel where they're at. It's why we are rethinking community groups as we enter into a new fall season, and it's why we're emphasizing this sermon series, Love Your Neighbor. Because at the end of the day, The only way to bring the gospel within reach of north of 841,000 people in the Lehigh Valley 
is to believe that God has placed you where you are in a providential way to make the gospel known. Here's what Paul says. How can 841,000 people believe a gospel they've never heard? And how can 841,000 people hear a gospel unless someone shares it with them? And how can 841,000 people have the gospel preached to them or shared with them unless someone is sent to them? And the truth is, we have been sent to them. What would it mean to be people who are unashamed to love our neighbor by sharing our faith with them. Can I pray with you?